Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Philly McMahon was one of the key players on one of the great GAA teams, winning eight All-Ireland titles as a talented and abrasive defender with Dublin before his retirement in 2021. But if anything, the mark he has made off the field is just as impressive. A successful businessman and performance coach, he has brought his own life experiences to his work as an advocate on drug policy, homelessness and helping disadvantaged communities. It's earned him widespread admiration, even from those who didn't always enjoy playing against him. Philly, it's great to chat to you. Um, you are now in the, the camp of the retired legends. Uh, how has it been to step away from it all, from something that was so big a part of your identity for so long and at which you achieved so much success? You get, you get days that it's tough. And um, I suppose for me, I, was, I had one eye on it since, I'd say, about 2015. I started to, to see some of my teammates retire and the process they were going through just before they retired. And, I suppose I just kept one eye on on what was coming after. Uh, although it was obviously giving me hundred percent while I was there and focusing on on what, when I had to and what my job was. But yeah, I suppose um, I had one eye on what was happening after retirement and and the opportunities that have come from that. And obviously I was I'm kept busy now with my son Lennon. So um, yeah, so it, it's it's the highs and lows of, of sport, but that's that's it always has to come to an end, unfortunately. Let's go back to where it all started then. You are a son of Ballymun, one of Ballymun's most famous uh, sons. It's been a big part of your identity. Um, you've spoke so much about what it, it gave you uh, and the challenges that the area uh, faced uh, during your lifetime and, and still today. Um, how did growing up there shape who you are? Well, it essentially gave me the life skills to challenge the standards of my culture in Ballymun or what was perceived a culture and standards of Ballymun, which is basically, you know, these are the things you should have to do if, if you come from that area. And and I think um, the more and more people in a, in a community like Ballymun that challenge those standards break generational cycles. And, and that's what I was unconsciously uh, fortunate to do, you know, and obviously seeing the pain and suffering my brother went through and things were going the opposite route also had an impact in, in, in me playing football. So um, being, I suppose, on a football pitch and in, instead of probably hanging around the blocks at times, certainly made uh, made made me, me stay in a, a good pathway, you know, in life. So I'm very thankful for growing up Ballymun. I wouldn't have changed it. Um, I always say, you know, if I was to choose between a five, six, seven bedroom house somewhere else, I, I would have took me flat over all, all day, you know. And, uh, you know, it was just... We didn't have, there wasn't a huge amount of money in the area, but we had a lot of special things that other communities hadn't got. So that, that community spirit, um, you know, even when I was playing sport, we had a lot of teams and the parents and mentors of other teams say bad things about us. And 
but even to today, you know, when I go around the country speaking, sports clubs, charity events, or corporate companies, um, I ask the question, you know, who has heard about Ballymun? What good things have you heard? What bad things have you heard? And generally you have a lot more bad things. And, and I hope that when I leave that room after doing that talk, that people can say, now I've got, I've got a better perception of the area. You mentioned your brother John there. Um, when you wrote your autobiography back, came out back in 2017, you know, he was the central theme of it, or certainly the central theme of your life against how his life panned out. And that idea, the book is called The Choice. For people who, who aren't aware, didn't hear the, uh, didn't read the book or aware of John's story, um, just tell us what, what kind of fellow was he? Tell us a little bit about him. So John was seven years older than me. But unfortunately, John, very similar to me, to be honest, wasn't really interested in school, like, you know, wasn't academic. And when John grew up, the community of Ballymun was hit with the heroin epidemic in this, that was, it was kind of the focal point of the heroin epidemic in this country. And there was very little support at the time. Uh, Ballymun also was ghettoized in that a lot of the people that were financially stable in the community were given a grant, it was called a surrender grant, it was £5,000 and they basically were given the opportunity to use that as a deposit to buy a house outside of Ballymun. So yeah, we're left with a lot of people that were uh, probably unemployed, uh, single parents, young parents, a lot of mental health institutes at a similar, a similar time in Ballymun was going to be the community that would accommodate those people that were struggling with mental health. So it became a, a very lucrative business for drug dealers, um, you know, confined, small area, but had 20 odd thousand people because they were on top of each other in the flats and the towers. And unfortunately, John got, got, got caught up in that at a very young age because he wasn't involved in school or maybe didn't really build up that commitment level or resilience level and stuff. You know, he, he fell into hanging around with an older group of guys. They were obviously, had gone through that experimentation with drugs and he started dabbling at the age of 14 and uh, went on that cycle of starting off as a functional addict from the age of 14 to 18. He was working, uh, feeding his habit and then unfortunately his employer seeing that he was struggling with addiction and, and they, they let him go and then he started stealing from the home so my parents had to uh, evict him from the home so he was living on the streets because we felt that if we kept him in the home and he kept stealing things, that ultimately you were aiding his habit mm -hmm. and that could make uh, make things worse for him. So as most parents will do today and, and did back then, they, they'll say, look, it, we'll put you on the streets and if that's not hard enough for you, if that's hard, then you'll get clean and you'll come back. Like a tough love. Yeah, tough love is, is, is a part of that, you know. Um, my mum was probably the only one that didn't, use tough love to the extent as what we did as, as siblings and, and my dad to an extent. But that was the wrong thing to do, you know, because ultimately what I discovered in my education after John passed away uh, around addiction is that ultimately the person has to take the responsibility and you have to let go of the responsibility. But you have to be there when that person hits rock bottom, mm -hmm. wants to change, and you have to be the support network and I think sometimes as family members, particularly, we take that load on too much and we take that responsibility on too much. But fortunately, John would have struggled. We found out later in life that John struggled with schizophrenia and 
it made total sense why he connected with drugs instead of people. Your own response sort of sums that up because your name as a chi- as a as a child was was Philip Caffrey, mm. which was your mother's name, um, and and uh, John had a different father from a previous relationship mm. your mother had, and, and your father is, is is McMahon, and you were I, I guess as a fair to say you were sort of acting out that isolation and turning your turning away from John and his problems. You were obviously only a young kid at the time yourself. In, in shame, was that it? Um, that, that, that even yeah. your own reaction to your brother was what society was doing to people like John on a, on a bigger level? Yeah, we, I've ta- I've, I was taught at a very young age that drugs is wrong and it's against the law and people that take them are, are wrong and, and they're criminals and, you know, I wasn't educated that most people that become addicts have struggled with childhood trauma or maybe have mental health uh, issues. Uh, I didn't understand that, and young people today don't understand that. There's a maturity cycle in, in drugs. Um, there's some people that will stay on drugs, there's some people that will get clean, and there's other people, unfortunately, will, will overdose and die. And a lot of those older guys that John was hanging around with, they went either one of those ways, and John started hanging around with my mates, which were kind of similar to John's age, but I was hanging around with all the lads. So, you know, John would have been on the blocks with them and I would have just walked by them, like, you know, totally ignored him as a brother, you know, would have spoke to him with hurt and pain and anger. Why are you doing this? Like, and you've let us down hundreds of times. I've, you know, I've tried to help you hundreds of times, but what are you doing? Like, you know, and I never really understood how powerful this substance was in helping him uh, overcome that psychological pain he had ultimately being schizophrenia. Um, more than, it's more than 10 years now since, since he died and you know, you had the benefit then of education and in, in the book, which you wrote a few years ago, as I said, it's extraordinary it, the, the different mindsets then when you start thinking about how society um, treats drug, drug addiction and mm. the idea of it as a crime rather than a mental health issue, for example. So you, at that time, were, were making it your your goal to sort of change um, all that. W- were you driven, do you think, by a little bit of guilt or a little, bit of, a little bit of anger towards the way that John was treated? For me, it's the anger or maybe regret was not really at John or losing John. There was obviously a, in the early stages of the grievance period for me that I didn't understand. But today, my anger is at society. <laughs> And that's not saying that John didn't make the choice to go that route. Mm. I'm saying we can do more. And if we could do the things that I think would make a difference, John possibly could be still here today. And we lose just over one person a day. Statistically, we lose over one person a day from a drug overdose. Um, And so that's 360 odd people a year we're losing. You know, and, and there's a, you know, there's, there's really bad problems. It, it's really bad when we, we, we look at the stigmatization of our policy, the shame it brings, and how loved ones treat that loved one that's struggling, which we, we probably don't know until later in their life or until that person goes for help. And, you know, it's, it's very hard. Like, it's, it's very hard to discover what the real issue is. And once you understand what the real issue is, then you've got empathy and then you've, you, you understand that, hold on, society can help this massively. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ballymon Kickhams, through your successes and the likes of James McCarthy and the Smalls and, you know, the Dean Rock and, you know, and everybody knows the name now and, and they mm. obviously had a glorious past as well. But when, when you got involved with the club, um, things weren't quite at that level. And tell us about Paddy Christie knocking on the door of your primary school classroom and, yeah. and how that moment sort of changed things. He took a team, my team of lads, uh, from a very young age, and he was still playing his football career, you know, which is incredible. He was still playing for Dublin as a fullback and he was actually coaching kids' teams. And he just was very clever in his recruitment. He was very clever in his coaching uh, methods. Uh, and one of the things he would have done would, would have been he would have come to the primary school and he'd knock at a class where he'd have two of his players and he'd say to the, whatever the teacher was there, he'd say, can I have him and him for just for a few minutes? And they'd walk out and he'd basically be saying to them, look, you're training in Poppingtree Park on Thursday at seven o'clock. And the other kids that were left in the classroom were always intrigued. You know, they were always like, how are they getting away with like not doing whatever subject we're doing here? They're getting out, they're getting off doing that. And what's he actually chatting to them about? And that's all he was saying. Like, mm. And I was playing soccer at the time. It was the first sport I took up. But he, I always seen some of my mates from Salog going outside the classroom. And I was always like, I want a bit of that. Like, I want to know what's going on there. Like, you know. So I'd ask my mate when he came back in, when, when he was training, and he'd say, Thursday, I'd say, can I go up there? And then my name was getting called out. And you just felt, you felt important in the class environment, you know, and that was one of the things he did. He made sure that he, he had certain individuals from Ballymun that he'd bring to the senior Ballymun Kickham's games where he'd be kicking, just kicking the ball back to the senior players and sometimes he would have brought us down to the Dublin team and we were kicking the balls back. So he was just smart like that, drive, us, drive five or six of us home uh, before we got home, he'd he'd bring us to the snooker hall in the local snooker hall in Ballymore. We just loved playing for him and his teams. And this is all purpose and you know identity and something to channel. You know, yeah. you talk about kids who don't have anything and turn to crime and drugs. Like you guys now had this this sort of reason to go and, and, and play sport. Well, the contact hours were much higher than what most coaches were spending with their players. Like you know, so having that extra hour in the pool hall meant that you're an extra hour away from the blocks. One crucial thing that I think was very important was 
he understood the energy that Ballymun kids had and how well that would blend with the energy that the Glass Nevin kids had. So at a point they merged together and throughout my time from let's say eight, nine, ten up to senior, we would have learned so much from each other. We would have had so much the, the energy and chemistry was special, like. But because they were different, sort of. Different working, different classes, yeah. different like so middle class, a, a stone throw away from where I lived in the flats. So I lived in the four story flats. You have the field, and you have a big. And wall. That wasn't a source of um, division, or. Yeah, well, see, that's that's what you would think, but yeah. that's what Paddy was good at. Like, so when them them Glass Nevin lads were talking about leaving certain points and what courses they were going to do, we were we were just like. Ah, we're all right. We're just gonna complete our leaving search. You know, we're happy just to complete our leaving search. But being around that, we started to be a bit curious. You know, well, maybe I can go to university. Maybe I can do what they've done, mm. and some of us did. And you had great success. Um, you won in two thousand seven was a big uh, breakthrough within the under twenty one uh, county title. But just talk to me about about twenty twelve. Then mm. you're obviously established with the county at this stage, but with the club. Um, winning the Dublin Championship that year, it was the first time in 27 years, and going on winning Leinster, Leinster club title and reaching an All-Ireland final. Now, I know that day didn't go your way, but that whole experience for the club and the community, like how, looking back on it now, and I know it was, uh, it was just after John died as well for you mm. personally, mm. but the whole experience for the club and, and, and the community, how did it bring everybody together and, and, and make the club the centre of, of that community? That year... We had, I'd lost my brother John, and we'd also lost a legend in the club, Sean Andrews, uh, Val Andrews' brother. He, he also had his nephew, um, Fig Andrews, playing on, on the squad as well uh, that year. And that was crucial for us for, for the success that we had because we had a bigger purpose to play for then. And uh, I had, like, you know, it was, it was a, an unbelievable experience to have lost a brother. But I had gained a team of brothers, you know, that really wrapped around me, and and probably one of my best club foot years of playing club football was was that year, you know. Um, so yeah, we got we won the Leinster. The whole community got behind us, and you know what was special that day? I remember seeing people from Ballymun United, from Satanta, from uh, from everywhere, like from every other sports club in the community, come to come to Crow Park. Or even you know going going to the games in Leinster, that was special. Like, there's felt people that probably played for Ballymun Kickers when they were kids, hadn't been around the club for years, and have were at those games, you know. And I'd say majority of Ballymun was in Crow Park that day. And unfortunately, we got beaten in the last thirty seconds. Mm. But um, life is all about experiences, particularly in sport, and that was one that'll stay with me for the rest of my life. By the way, uh, you you could have uh, taken a sidestep in sporting wise. Is it true that you you could have had a, a soccer career like you yeah. were your soccer you were on trials in England as well? Yeah, as I said, soccer was my first sport. Very young age, played for Ballymun United, then played for Belvedere. Yeah, got scouted to go to Nottingham Forest. Um, unfortunately, when I came back, there was opportunity to go on other trials, but I again, <laughs> Paddy Christie's magic. I was in school and I remember having to go training. And I was training, I was playing with Belvedere, a brilliant club, really good club at the time. But I remember um, Davy Bourne coming into, into, into school. And I remember him walking down the corridor and he had this Adidas tracksuit on, full kitted out Adidas tracksuit with Ballymun Kickham's crest and logo on, and a Ballymun Kickham's bag, Adidas. And I'm like, 
And then I looked at myself and I was I had my gear in school because I was going, I had to basically get the bus to Fairview to go training. And I remember saying to myself, I only got a top and a pair of shorts. <laughs> I had to pay for them. Like, and I says to Dave, did you have to pay for this? No, Paddy got us them. And he says, want to see the boots we got? And I said, oh, geez, he takes the boots out. So I went back playing a bit of football. But not only that, did that entice me to go back heavily, more focused into GAA. Before I left, Paddy came to me and he would have said, hope you make it. Hope it works. Hope, hope it goes well for you. And if it doesn't, yeah. we'll just remember, you can always come back and play for us. He didn't have any, you know... Don't you darken our door yeah, again. You know, I, uh, you know, you're playing soccer and Gaelic, you know. Yeah. It was like, it was so... I remember the, 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 the week before I went away, there was two of us from Ballymun, myself and Mark Hartigan, went away to Forest. And, and that was the... the, the he, he probably doesn't realise, seeing Davey that day being looked after so well, and him saying those words pushed me back into Gaelic football mm. and just for about a year, I just went, after that a year, I just went, I'm not playing soccer anymore. Let's talk about Dublin then. How soon, when you realised you had a talent, did winning a Dublin jersey become the driving factor? Well, I, I was never really a, a big fan of Dublin. Like, you know, my dad would have brought me to games and that was because Paddy was getting us tickets for the games at a young age, you know. And uh, when I started playing for Dublin, it was just like playing for another team, you know. But really? if I, but if I played as a kid, if I was a big fan as a kid, like I was a fan, like but I wasn't like, yeah, I don't know what you call it, an extreme fan or something yeah, like yeah. that. Where if I missed the game, I missed the game. Like it wasn't, you know, wasn't that big for me. Like, but I think that helped because I was just playing for. Like, it was special to play for Dublin. Don't get me wrong. Having said that, so you're on the Dublin panel in 2008 and then Pat Gilroy comes in and you get dropped off the panel. Now, in your book, you describe that as one of the biggest challenges of your life. You said mm. it was hell, it was embarrassment, it was pure depression. Mm. Now, given everything else that's going on in your life at this time, obviously, with your, your brother and his struggles, that's quite a statement. Yeah, that was really, really tough because at that point, I'd start to be recognised as a young fella that played for Dublin. And then... There was a change in management. Peter Caffrey stepped away. Pat Gilroy comes in. And you have this drive to go, right now, new manager, I want to impress. And we played this regional tournament, which was like North Dublin, South Dublin, or it was four kind of regions. Um, and in that tournament, I was probably over-aggressive. <laughs> that's, that's what I'd say. <laughs> and I got the phone call. He, he, was, he was talking about, Pat was talking about... <laughs> He'd be in touch with lads uh, when the next training session is. And there was a couple of days gone by and I was like, what's going on here? I haven't heard that. And then I got the phone call. I actually texted him. I said, Pat, what's going on? <laughs> and uh, I got the phone call and he says, look, yeah, we're not, uh, not, not going to have you in this year. Uh, why was it so devastating for me? Because it was simply because I had to tell everybody. <laughs> Yeah, the embarrassment of it. You know, it was it was terrible to tell me parents, you know, they were as much as I was looking forward to kicking on with a new manager and building on the year before and yet I wasn't given the chance, you know, so. You, you wrote in one of your columns, actually intriguing one, you were writing about um, man management and you said that Gilroy brought you, asked you to come over to his house when you were back in the panel, presumably. Yeah. And he told you that he didn't like you. Yeah. 
and but but it sort of worked it, in 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 your yeah. response to it. Yeah, it worked. Like, what was the d- dynamic there? I think that's one of Pat's strengths. You know, he tries to figure the individual out and how can he get the best out of the individual, and he's certainly done that at stage for me. Like, so as you said, he would have brought me down to his house and he said like. Sort would have said a few things to me and, and he said, do you think I think that of you? And I said, well, <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing me head in and training. <laughs> I said to him, so you, you just keep calling me and you keep, and I'm, I'm trying to focus on a drill, you keep giving out and I'm just like, uh, and I like, I know I make mistakes and I know I'm not perfect, but I'd like a bit more support on those things. And, and he just basically said, look, I know your background. He says, I know where you come from and I know that when it's put up to you, you'll fight back. And that's why I'll, prod at you and keep going at you and after that then when I and he didn't really do it much after that actually mm. but it, when he did uh, I think he'd done it at the important times then you know when we had that conversation he probably understood that I wasn't a fan of it at times um, and then there was times that I realised that it actually impacted me the right way I'm the type of fella that would have to get a dig in a match to really get going. Like, mm. I'll get an elbow, purposely or accidentally, I don't care. Once I get that, that adrenaline gives me that energy to really, really go after something. And uh, he would have done that a bit, yeah, as a, as a manager. But I discovered then in the next management team that I didn't have to do any of that. Obviously, the, getting the, the, the sort of the promised land of 2011 and getting that 16 year wait over. But then what happened next was just. I mean, extraordinary. It is one of the great, you know, sporting teams of all time. Um, people always just sort of ask about about the Jim Gavin thing. Is what's he doing? Because we see him on TV. He's not giving it in a way. Mm. His, interview, his interviews. He's not. He's clearly not throwing teacups around and, and uh, inspiring speeches. If, you know, just I mean, it's such a broad question. What did he do? You'd have to do a, a PhD on yeah. on this topic because. There's a, there's a huge amount that he did. Um, in saying that, there was a lot that Pat Gilroy did that was passed through also. And I think Jim would be the first one to say that as well. But under Jim, Pat probably would have used kind of to develop a culture through his business experiences. Jim would have added to that through his military experiences. Um, what Jim, sort of things? like? Well, um, simple things like he would have been very consistent in his language, very consistent in his messaging. Um, the culture that he brought was a player-centric culture, which you would have heard lots of us speak, lots of us dubs speak about, that at a certain point, he would have passed over the responsibility to the players to say, this is yours. We're here to help you, we're here to support you and expose you to certain levels that when you play matches, it's easy to play and you understand, you know, adaptable. And uh, and you have to marry that with a lot of really intelligent, good footballers came along at that time as well. Mm. But years before that, you had all the work done by the county board. You know, the huge amount of effort and work that was done um, in previous years in the clubs to get those, as I said, those group of lads to get to a point where they all came together and were able to create an expression, a special experience. When people in that period of unbelievable success uh, started talking about the money mm. and the money was put into the county board and the money that Dublin could access through sponsorships and all that, and that that was giving Dublin un- unfair advantage, mm. how did that feel uh, to you guys at the middle in the in the middle of it? 
we were educated to not really focus on that. You know, um, we were there to play football. We weren't there to be politically, you know. Ignored it, basically. You know, yeah. Um, I suppose when I finished up and looked back, it was hurtful that, you know, we said this was always going to end. <laughs> mm. You know, it was never going to last forever. There's every, every so often there's certain counties that will have a purple patch that was theirs. And we hope to get back to it again. I hope the group that's there do it this year. But um, we always said that. But other people then were saying it's because of money and population. And maybe there is statistics that will build that up and support that. But for me, I'd come from a, a club of people that put huge work into me and into other Ballymun Kikums players that were represented in Dublin. And it, it was so disrespectful to them. Imagine, like, I always ask the question, where did I see the money? Tell me, where, where did I see the money? Like, in what? In an SNC, in a nutritionist, or in, you know, where? Like, that's what all the teams have. We don't have our own training ground. We don't have our own ex uh, uh, performance centre. Mm. You know, we, we use DCU's pitches. We play in Inish Vales, a club in Dublin, you know, um, in the winter in our off season. Then we go to DCU. Let me talk about 2015. Um, one of your one of your best years with Dublin, and certainly most prominent years. And that was the year I think you sort of added a real attacking side to your game. Scored one two in the semi final replay win over Mayo. And there's a famous image from the final. You're marking the Gooch, one of the iconic players, attacking players of all time in Gaelic football. And the image of that of that game is of him chasing you to try and stop you scoring a point and failing to do score and that famous point you got yeah. just before halftime in that game. Was that a conscious thing? How am I going to handle this for that? I'm going to make him yeah. chase me. Yeah. Uh, and was that a thing you were adding specifically uh, adding to your game that, that season? Over the years, I'd been getting up the pitch a little bit more often um, and built that trust up with my teammates and my management that it's okay for a cornerback to be able to attack because it gives the opposition management another thing to think of. So being a being allowed to be expressive under Jim Jim Gavin, particularly his, his management team, um, was crucial in that game in that Kerry game because a couple of days before it, I was given the task. What do you think of taking up Colm Cooper? Yeah, okay, let's do it. And, you know, having those couple of days to reflect on what he'd experienced and, you know, the total respect I had for the quality of a player he was really made the, I suppose, got the best out of me in terms of the homework I'd done on him. I asked, I, I looked at every angle of what, how I could get the best of him, you know, and the only thing I could come up with is make him be a defender, you know. Mm. And uh, and I didn't see any other previous games or previous years of him being brought that direction, you know. And I'm just thankful it worked that day, you know, because um, he's a crucial part. He was a crucial part of that team. The reason maybe that that game and that season stands out as a sort of you know really uh, emblematic for you is that it it showed off both sides of your uh, your style of play and certainly the perception of you. When you were, when you crossed that white line that you had a, a win at all costs mentality, is that is that fair? Yeah, I would have definitely. Um, 
whatever jersey I put on, I'm going to do whatever I can to help that team and win the game, yeah. That's the way I was. Remember, I wasn't a massive fan of the, of the dubs, like, you know, so I'm there to play football. And if I made many enemies because of that, that's sport, like, you know, you're not going to keep everybody happy at the end of the day. But I, I suppose I was very lucky in the Mayo game because there was an incident where I was blamed, um, probably because perception of what I'd, how I've played the game before that. But I remember Aidan O'Shea, two of us holding each other and he pulled me and I looked like I loathed him. <laughs> and I was getting done for that. Mm. And I was like, I don't remember doing that. I was like, I can't believe the cameras. And I was convinced they did it. And then it came out, there was a, a video clip from the other side. It came out that I, he said I did it. And it actually, on the other side, uh, over, the, over the Cusick side, there was a, a footage of me being like kind of held on my ground like that and he pulled me towards, you can see him actually pulling and I'm coming towards. I was very lucky that that, that clip that got aired because I wouldn't have been playing the final. Now, the final uh, incident with, with, with Donny, he put my hand in where I shouldn't have been and I got my punishment for that. Did that cost you a footballer of the year that year, do you think? In my opinion, it probably did, you know. Um, I mean, football of the year is a popularity contest, you know, because players vote for you. So mm. you're not going to vote for somebody that's doing, you know, putting his hand where he shouldn't be in or as earmarked to mark your key forward, you know. You're, and, and there was three of us in it. It was me, Jack and Bernard, three dubs. So someone from Dublin was going to win it. Um, but certainly a fella that played like me in a popularity contest wasn't going to win it. Does it bother you that people will say, actually, you know, you can say win at all costs, but character, you know, sport reveals character and that behaviour on the field it reflects a person's character as well. And no matter all the, the good things that he does off the field and that he's a, he's a great fellow when you meet him, yeah. that this is part of who he is and, and that would take a, a negative view of you as a person from some of those things that you did. I'm sure there is, but I'm, I'm sure my answer to that is you should always get to know somebody before you judge them, you know. So everybody that knows me would know I'm a different person on the pitch to off the pitch, you know. And the only thing I can put it down to, and it's not a reason or an excuse, but you have to remember sport in many ways was a saviour for me because it, it brought me a different direction in life. And when I went and played sport, the energy I had was vented from the, the the anger and the pain and whatever suffering my brother was going through. So I was expressing that through the way I played. And that ultimately got me to a level, didn't it? Where a Dublin senior manager says, I like this fella's style. And then that style helped me mark certain individuals, certain players off opposition teams. My job was one small part of the rest of the team's performance to to help us win and to this day I'm able to sit in front of people and, and talk about the adversity I've had in life through having a profile through sport mm. and how I'm impacting society from that you know I will be judged for what I did on the pitch certainly of course I will but ultimately I've used I, I feel I've developed a purpose in life and sport and sport and profile and through my teammates and my county have helped me develop a profile to be able to chase that purpose, to impact people that are going maybe same pathways or families that are going through same similar experience to mine that my brother John did. So I think at the end of the day, 
there's something positive that comes out of it. Last one on this then, you wrote a great column on this as well and, and you said that, you know, in Gaelic football there's a whole other world we don't really talk about. Uh, maybe it's that sort of uh, hypocrisy, maybe uh, that's where the, the dark arts live and it's often where games are won and lost and I love that side of the game. Do you think that's it's a necessary evil to be successful in Gaelic football to have that those dark arts in a team? It's very hard to police, very hard to manage. Like, for example, um, that particular column was when I think Galway and Armagh had a melee going into the Cusick stand and the point I was trying to make is that regardless of what people say you know the propaganda around those incidents will always be they shouldn't happen you know and I agree with that however you try be a player from the ages of 20 24 25 going into such a tight space and your teammate who is wearing the crest that you love and represent is getting pulled left, right and centre mm. or someone's hit you in a nudge or whatever it is. You stand back from that and you're a coward. Right? And so that, that there, there are challenges in terms of the dark arts. The dark arts is the bad word for it. If we called it a bright arts, <laughs> it would be a skill. Yeah. You know, because why aren't we allowed to use psychology on the pitch when we try to use it off the pitch? Why aren't we allowed? Why aren't I allowed, if I'm marking you, talk to you about certain things that would put you off what you should be doing. I would much prefer to finish my career having won what I've won because I've done certain things to win those things for my teammates. Yeah. That's just who I am. And that was the, 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 I don't the, apologize for that. the rules of engagement as they were when you when you played. That was me, yeah. yeah. I, I, I certainly sometimes crossed the line, but sometimes I wanted to get to that line to get the best out of me and to get the best out of my opponent. Because the opponent for me was very important. I always wanted to mark the players that were the best. Always. Never once did I step away from, never once did I fear having to mark. Did I see, did I sometimes get a, a, a baiting from a, from, a, from a player that I was playing against? Of course I did, but they were learnings then. That, that made me better. So I always was curious to grow, I suppose. And I always wanted to use all aspects of my game, technically, tactically, physically, mentally. I was going after all of those. And I think the game will evolve over years and, and that will become, without having to go near certain things like racism and bereavement and the obvious things, the common sense things that you shouldn't go near. Mm. Um, for me, I used to tell, you know, just it's like a game of poker, isn't it? Like, you know, so, you know, if you look at poker and you look at how people read each other, should that be banned? Is that sporting or non-sporting? So I was playing a game of poker. I was seeing a fella, you know, and I was saying to myself, will he like me saying positive or negative things to me, to him? And sometimes I'd say, geez, you're playing well today. <laughs> or, you know what, that manager's looking over here. You must be coming off soon. And him looking over and then I know I have him now. He thinks he's playing bad. And I'd constantly, you know, mm. add to that. Like So again, I don't see a problem with that. Yeah, the battles with Mayo over that time became iconic games. They were br brilliant games. And it's fitting that you're at your last act in a Dublin jersey. <laughs> I said, use the word jersey appropriately because yeah. it was getting that jersey ripped by Aidan O'Shea in a bit of a melee <laughs> yeah. at the end. The, the loss, yeah. the, the only real loss uh, to Mayo uh, in that era um, in, in 2021. Why did you have such great games with Mayo and why did you guys always come out on top? I think in those vital moments, we showed real leadership. That's that's not really to say that Mayo didn't have leaders. 
but we we had people that in those moments were able to do the job whether it's you know a kick out a kick pass a score Dean in his in the, in the last kick even when something's getting thrown at him he's mm. able to kick it over the bar but um, I just think you also have to look at in terms of Mayo how and as much as the Dublin fans are passionate the Mayo fans are really passionate and I'd wonder and I'd question how much of the expectation seeped in on those players to win an All-Ireland. It was constantly about, the, the language that was seeping in was constantly about winning an All-Ireland. And when we had won our first All-Ireland and probably our second, it was kind of like more than that for us. So when you compete with a team that has a vision of something higher than winning an All-Ireland and yours is to win an All-Ireland, there's a gap there to be closed. So you, you, you work with the gyms, um, with the personal training, the coaching. I wonder how much your personal life began to inform that work. You know, this idea of helping people kind of runs through, you know, the whole thing. I mean, does that come from the bad things that you'd seen that you became interested in the whole idea of human potential and getting people not to not to waste their, their lives or not for not to become victims of their circumstances? Yeah, it definitely did. I think when I started to delve into when John passed and the crucial thing for me was to understand that I have a chance to live and John doesn't. As much as selfish that sounds, John would want me to pursue and so would my dad, like, you know, to pursue certain things in life. But I always got a buzz and an energy from helping people, like, you know, um, and that self-serving value that I would have you know, and what I mean by self-serving is that, like, when we help others, you get something from it, like, so it's a selfish so that's thing. that's what motivates you to do yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, that would have came from, certainly from my dad, my dad's roots of being from West Belfast, the troubles, um, him fighting for his community. And that had an impact on me, certainly, you know. So I suppose that's something deep inside you. That's a value set that's been... Mm pass through your experiences and your environment in life and I, I'm thankful and grateful that I have that value inside me to be able to do that. Does the work in prisons, tell us a little bit about that because that seems to be a kind of like a clear example of that and obviously John has spent time in prison as well mm. so I'm sure that informed your, your, your work there but you're talking about people who you know really need somebody to come in and, and help them point them in a different path. So, so um, the crucial thing for me along this purpose in life is uh, the purpose I have of helping people that are in similar pathways as John is that there's a spectrum and there's like early intervention, at-risk youths, people that have gone into prison settings. Um, so those are the three key points, like, you know. And when you go to the other end, which is people that end up in prison, the problem you have is that a lot of these people that are in prison are coming from similar backgrounds. They're coming from similar communities. And the question, and, and a majority of the crimes are drug-related crimes. And, and when, you have a, when you have a social exclusion society, which is very problematic, in other words, you have majority and minority, um, that has to be challenged. When you have social inequality, that has to be challenged. And the people like me who are from those communities 
impoverished communities are starting to become more educated and are starting to challenge those societal issues. And that's what I'm looking to do in Mount Joy. These people have made bad choices in the past, but what's really important going forward is what choices they make in the future. And there'll be a lot of cases of people going, why are you in there, Philly? There's a lot of victims around their crimes. And I get that. I'm, we're all victims of crime, mm. by the way. But I, I was certainly like, I've, you know, a brother struggled with addiction. I'm helping drug dealers. However, when you look at the structures and the environment that these people grew up in, if those, those environments changed, certainly we'd have a bigger, it'd have a massive impact in the, the amount of crime and victims we have in, in, in this country. So we have, at the minute, if that's the case, we have a problem and we have a kind of a war, not on drugs, but a war on social class. So there's drugs in every social class. Why is the working class, uh, why, are, why are working class communities highly represented in prisons? That's the question that I want to try challenge or, or, or answer and, and impact. To round off then, Philly, you are somebody whose glorious on-field success is now, I know you're still kicking ball with, with Ballymun Kickhams, but probably in the past. And a lot of times that can maybe give people a sense of my best days are behind me. But it feels like you are motivated by, by other things now. It's obviously not the chase for a Dublin jersey to hold on to your jersey. Motivated by, by other things. What do you see motivate, motivating you in, in the years ahead? You're still only a young man. I know yeah. you, you talked about John's debt being like the halftime talk of your life. You wrote that mm. in, in your book. So what about this, this period from now on? As I said at the start, like I was very conscious of, you know, at a certain point knowing that this massive chunk, 40 plus hours a week gone from my life and... Mm. And uh, I suppose the first part is I've a young son now, Lennon. He's nine months old. I I need to probably spend a bit more time with family, uh, my own family as well, my siblings and and my mom. And that's quite difficult because I get opportunities all the time, which is great. Which shows that probably are doing things right in life, you know. Um, so I, I like doing the. I really enjoyed doing um, the column and podcasts and stuff like that for the Irish Independent and yeah so I, I'm just very fortunate to be given opportunities and I don't know what's next I don't I don't really want to plan too much in terms of what life brings but I just want to give everything I well, can Dublin manager obviously uh, Dublin manager after yeah. Desi no. yeah no well like I mean <laughs> would you be interested in, 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 in manning the sideline at some stage is it is it something you're interested in yeah yeah I would yeah yeah I've I've obviously doing performance coaching. I've worked heavily with management teams and doing that gives you a great exposure to what works and what doesn't work or frameworks or cultural uh, frameworks. It, it's, it's, it's something that I have now. I've, you know, I've built up uh, an expertise of strength and conditioning. I've done punditry. Um, I've done performance coaching, psychology work and I think the next step certainly is is looking at maybe coaching and management. Don't know what level, don't know who with, but once I get um, the time to do it, um, I, I think that's something I'll dip my toe in. If a county outside of Dublin came looking for you? I've always said um, difficulty with stepping outside of Dublin is Dublin don't really have, you know, ex-players, ex-dubs don't really take jobs outside of the county. Um there, 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 is, there has been fellas that have done it, but it's very few. But I suppose I would have no problem with other players 
taking jobs outside of if you know ex teammates taking jobs outside the county if Dublin weren't interested in those getting involved with, with, with Dublin and if those if the team that they got involved with weren't competing with Dublin. So what you're saying is you're hoping to add to those eight All Ireland medals in the future then. <laughs> I'd love to be a part of a Dublin setup eventually, yeah, but I don't know what what when and at what what kind of level. Philly, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks for telling us your story. Thanks very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.